You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. Hello, it's episode 44 of Grow Yourself Up. Welcome back. Today um, on the podcast, I'm talking to Hannah Clapham. Hannah has a sleep consultancy in London called Little Nest, and Little Nest offers holistic, responsive sleep support for babies, toddlers, and their very tired parents. Hannah began supporting local families after a particularly sleep-deprived first year of parenthood when she read everything she could about why a family might be having a hard time with naps and night times. In 2020, she decided to train in her holistic sleep coaching with Lindsay Hookway, and she's turned her passion into a career. She's on Instagram as Little Nest, and all of this will be included in the show notes. And she has um, two sleep guides that feature responsive sleep strategies for both babies and toddlers, as well as a number of webinars on specific sleep challenges from gentle night weaning to transitioning to childcare, and they're all available to download on her Podia site, and those details will also be in the um, show notes. Um, we covered a lot of ground in this um, episode. We talked about uh, baby sleep, the challenges that come with that, what we tell ourselves, um, how rage often comes up around sleep, and rage generally we, we talked a lot about. We talked about breastfeeding, um, the the pain around breastfeeding journeys, breastfeeding trauma, um, and all of it, we kind of looking through the lens of perfectionism and control. So there's a lot of um, richness in this episode. Okay, let's get started. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really delighted to have you here. Tell us a bit about um, your journey to motherhood. Yeah, well, thank you so much for inviting me as well. It's really lovely. And I'm I'm so passionate about talking about this. And I love hearing other people's stories. So, but yeah, I... Um, I think I had some very strong opinions or held beliefs about what I thought motherhood would be beforehand, as I think many of us do. I wasn't actually sure if I wanted to have children. In my 20s, I felt quite um, passionate about just living like, you know, I wanted to travel. I wanted to have a really busy career. I didn't see how children would ever fit into that. And then I suppose I started thinking things again in my 30s and I suppose looked at my life and actually I kind of felt like I did have a sort of a longing to be a mother and to have a family. And so my husband and I decided it was the right time. 
And I had this idea that a baby would fit into my life rather than me fit into their life. And I would still have, you know, all the travel and career and you know, like just love it, like social life and everything. And I was just going to do it with my baby, like, you know, like a new handbag or something. Yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, just he'll, he or she will just come along for the ride and there'll be a great adventure and I'm not going to be stressed and I'm not going to, you know, I'm just going to crack on. And then obviously that didn't happen at all. And, um, I think I had lots of ideas about me being a sort of natural earth mother type maybe or that you know I was just gonna trust my intuition and go with the flow and I'd always thought of myself as someone who handled stress really well like I think at work in appraisals and things people have said you know you're you're really good at kind of in a crisis you can kind of I, I worked in an industry that involved lots of events lots of kind of thinking on my feet lots of tight deadlines I felt like I could yeah keep my head cool in in stressful situations I thought that was one of my like superpowers turns out that's not the case for parenthood and me at all and uh, yeah I had to learn a lot about myself or get to know myself in a new way or, or maybe a new person I suppose emerges that that mother like you know that matrescence process kind of happened and I realized that I wasn't so calm and <laughs> just so collected. <laughs> I really love what you say about that idea that it's natural and kind of um, that it's just going to emerge from us and somehow we're going to know exactly how to do it because that's absolutely untrue. Yeah. Um, and even though it might be natural because we have had babies for millions of years, we still have to learn yeah. and, and in many ways be taught how to do a lot of this stuff. Yeah, definitely. And what you said about being good in a crisis, because I was also very much like that, like give me a crisis and I'll like problems solve the hell out of it. Yeah. But it's totally different in, in motherhood, I think. And also, every day is a crisis in some way. Yeah, and it just triggers different parts of yourself and emotions. And I think before I'd become a mother, I think I felt like uh, if I had a problem, then the input could kind of match the output. You know, if I worked extra hours, if I really like researched or did my homework or, you know, really worked hard, or then maybe, you know, then I would have a good result. Obviously, not always, but generally I felt like, what I put in, I would get out. And then I discovered that with babies, that doesn't happen. You know, you can work really, really hard at something, but some things are just more difficult. Or because you are finding it difficult, it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It's just difficult sometimes. Yes. That sort of thing. And there isn't always a hack or a resolution or a, a fix. I found that really hard. Yeah. I think that's one of the hardest things. And I also went into it thinking, well, if I just put more work in, if I try harder, it will be better. And I think in many ways that causes us so much more pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did you notice that kind of come up for you? Well, I think I was having quite a straightforward pregnancy. I'd had I'd had a miscarriage before we got pregnant with my son, but Sorry to hear it that. was very early and I was lucky enough that I got pregnant again very quickly afterwards. So I'd had quite a straightforward, I suppose, pregnancy. And then in the last few weeks of my pregnancy, I developed a liver condition and things just started to get kind of complicated with my health and there were various tests and things going on. And I think I'd gone from having this idea, I ha I'd had a very clear like water birth, hypnobirthing idea in my head. I'd had this perfect birth in my head yeah. that was going to be very yogic and beautiful and, and goddessy. And then it became this incredibly medicalized situation involved a, a plan C-section. And I felt just then I felt, oh, well, I failed at that. I think from day one, I had a sense of failure over the C-section. And then I had a really difficult time with breastfeeding. And, and my son was quite 
unsettled. He had a lot of reflux, get weight gain issues, uh, jaundice. He cried a lot. He needed to be held 24-7. We could never put him down. I felt like I was doing something wrong there. We'd meet up with other people in our antenatal group and their babies would just be sleeping in a pram or you know, feeding contentedly and then sitting up and being settled. And my son would be, you know, we'd be the ones walking for miles. <laughs> He'd be crying, yes. throwing up. I just felt like, gosh, I must be doing this so wrong because he's not settled. He's not happy. And even I think when he was, in my mind, I was just so... The narrative of failure, like I couldn't even enjoy the nice bits because I was so self-critical and so um, consumed with this sense of failure. So we had, again, I think I thought breastfeeding was going to be this incredibly natural experience um, and effortless and and it wasn't. Uh, And so I, I think I had a lot of expectations that weren't being met and yeah yeah so I I feel like that was a big part of my journey through motherhood as well it's it there there were challenges and I felt like I couldn't I couldn't meet them and that point first of all I think what you say about breastfeeding well there's so much in what you just said so much richness but I think that there's so much trauma actually around breastfeeding and about um how it's just going to work and that the sense of failure when we can't do it together with our babies. Yeah. And what you talked about, about tongue tie, that seems to be so widespread and not often very picked up, to be honest. Yeah, that, that's the thing. That I was throwing everything I knew at it. You know, I could. I was going to breastfeeding cafes. I was talking to my health visitor midwives. Like I was constantly asking and nobody picked up on it until one night, I think, when my son was about eight weeks old and I just spent the whole night Googling, why is this still so hard at eight weeks? I came across like a tongue tie thing and I was like oh my goodness he fits nearly every symptom of a tongue tie and I'd actually been told several times that he didn't look like he had one it was not, it was fine um I just need to work on the latch or whatever and finally I just went into this breastfeeding local breastfeeding cafe and I said will you just please do a, a proper check and she did and she said oh yes okay you're right there is a tongue tie so it's just things like that like yeah. it felt like I found it hard to be taken seriously or listened to a lot at the time like I think a big part of how I've grown myself up as a mother actually is learning to advocate for myself because I do think there is a problem with with our healthcare system in general in terms of the amount of time they have to give to parents and not necessarily prioritising certain conditions like things like tongue tie. I think that is a problem. But I also think there is um, an opportunity there to learn how to advocate for yourself and how to stand up for yourself in, in those moments of crisis. Yes. Which I found really hard, but I do think now... It has given me some good kind of parenting skills that there have been other times then when I've had to sort of advocate for my child's health where I've been bullshit or confident or like I've not taken no for an answer. So yeah, it would be nice if parents didn't have to, but there is also, I suppose, some room to grow yourself up there, I suppose. Yes. And um, the idea of being more confident, because I think many of us come to, to motherhood with the thing that we need to be good and nice. And being good and nice means that authority figures like doctors or health visitors or people who say no no there's no tongue tie when you like clearly know there is yeah and so kind of finding our what I call our healthy fight response to kind of go no I need more help or I need to go to a specialist is so important so I love how you've kind of explained that I think that's really valuable but it's hard isn't it because you're also doing that sleep deprived hormonal exhausted overwhelmed it's really hard so I think you know it's the hardest to give myself time. a bit of a break for not having that 
uh, instinct straight away or to, to have taken a while to learn that. I'd say it took me a few years to get there. <laughs> but I think that's part of the process. I mean, I, I always think we have to be so gentle with ourselves because we go into motherhood using the coping strategy that have got us far in our lives, like perfectionism, like being good, like maybe pleasing other people. And so then I think it takes a while to come into a sense of our own strength and that we don't have to do those things anymore, that we're kind of safe not to do those. I mean, I think that's an ongoing learning, always. I think you're so right. That that good girl, pat on the back. I wanted to be the star student, the best. I wanted the, I don't know, I, other people's opinions of what I was doing really mattered a lot and, and pleasing them and not being too much trouble. That was a really big part of, of it for me. And really, we need to be some, I mean, not that we need to be trouble for trouble's sake, but I want to like sort of say to everyone, like, we have to like jump up and go like, well, yeah, don't mess with us. <laughs> yeah. That's just my opinion about motherhood sometimes. And tell me how, because that's such a, uh, like, that's really at the crux of growing yourself up about not pleasing people. How did you kind of let go of some of those expectations around how you should be? And also some of the expectations around your son and how you needed him to be so you could be okay? That's such a good question. I think, you know, I think I'm still in that process, if I'm really honest with myself. I think I'm still letting go of, of other people's expectations. I don't think I'm like there. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I never will be. I don't know. But can I interrupt, Hannah? I'm a psychotherapist and I'm also in that process still. So, <laughs> okay, good. It doesn't end. I don't, I don't want you to think that when I'm asking these questions, I'm trying to get us to some sort of end point. I think that there's so much of us. Yeah. That Ramdas expression, we're walking each other home. Yeah. We are all walking each other home because I think, you know, I shared a bit with you before we started recording about the school stuff we're going through. And um, that's a huge piece where I still want people's approval or it feels uncomfortable to do something that's not mainstream. And so I think it's a it's an evolving journey always. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do think I think being aware of it has, has helped actually being mindful of actually in this situation. Am I caring more about what other people might think of me or a comment that someone else made? I've tried to get better at listening to my own inner voice, I suppose, my own instincts. And I think just reflecting on why they might have, if, if you know, sometimes there are people with strong opinions in your life or they have very explicit expectations. It's not always in your head, is it? Sometimes there are people um, yeah. really putting that on you. <laughs> No, absolutely right. Yeah, and I so so there are times, you know, for example, with breastfeeding, there were some people in my life that really felt very strongly that I must not give up, and that it would be, you know, they were really saying you can't not breastfeed, and their expectations were very explicit in that way. And then I had other people in my life saying, "I don't understand why you're breastfeeding. This is clearly breaking you. What's wrong with formula? Why are you being so stubborn?" As well, so I had both of these things, and I remember feeling like. I can't please either of these groups, no matter what I choose. Someone's going to have an opinion of me. But ultimately, what matters there? Like, who am I doing this for? Because actually, it's about the, me and my child and the relationship there. And, and, you know, in some ways, actually, lockdown was very good for this process. <laughs> because I, I remember about a month into, like, yeah, so maybe like April 2020, and just suddenly feeling this sense of relief that no one was watching how I was parenting anymore. And don't get me wrong, I found that period incredibly difficult because my son was about eight months old and was very isolated. And I found that it, it was actually quite a dark time. But in some ways, 
I felt this incredible like relief and freedom from being able to parent exactly how I wanted to. So my son would contact, you know, he was a very, um, yeah, he was a koala baby. He liked a lot of cuddles and closeness and I felt a lot of shame and disappointment or whatever that I couldn't put him down for naps or he wasn't doing those lovely long naps in his cot or, you know, um, I just was like, so all those fantasies again, All actually. those fantasies about the, the good baby sleeping through or, you know, no one was watching. No one was passing any comments. And I didn't have to prove myself to anyone either. Yeah. And I just was able actually to lean into how we were feeding, how we were sleeping, how I was parenting, what I was feeding, like, you know, all of it. I didn't have to worry about baby led weaning in public or someone judging you for using a puree or any of that stuff. I just felt like, oh, I could do this. And I think that actually gave me a bit of confidence. And I realized it actually didn't make any difference whether there were people observing or not, because I was actually making the right choices for our child. And if I wasn't, then it was fine. And we learn and that other people are getting it wrong. You know, there's also that. It's like, yeah, exactly. Getting it wrong is okay. It's part of the process. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be right. I guess that's been a big part of my process was being completely isolated from everyone. <laughs> I think that does have a really helpful element. Not not that I would ever want lockdown to happen ever again, but that idea of we the not seeing people gave that freedom of I'm going to really investigate what works for us and then to kind of be brave yeah. enough to do it. And in some sense, we need to do that all of the time. But it's so much harder when we have this perceived gaze or our projection of what other people are thinking we're doing. In your breastfeeding, how did you actually sort of square that away like did you just kind of decide I'm, I'm not going to do this or I'm going to do this or did you have to have any conversations with people to say like stop I actually had a really great conversation with a breastfeeding counsellor and she was amazing actually because we kind of combination fed and I felt like I had this goal of exclusive breastfeeding and that anytime I gave him a bottle it was a failure and she just and, you know this is a breast this is a lactation consultant who's dropped you know and I and I felt she was someone that was going to judge me the most because I thought, oh, well, your job is to get everyone breastfeeding. And she just was like, is it a problem for you to give him a bottle at bedtime? And I was like, no, it's fine. You know, she's like, then is this for you? Like what she made me really think about my situation. Is this a problem for your baby? Are they feeding well? Are they gaining weight? Is it okay with you? Can you find a middle ground? Can you let go of the ideas that you might have and just find your way? And then she said, and then just don't think about milestones, goals. Just think today I'm doing what works and tomorrow I might do something different. And so yeah. I just started taking things day by day. I stopped thinking I have to breastfeed for this many months or this many years. I just thought I'm making the right choice for us today. And then I did decide to stop at about 10, 11 months. And it just felt so right. I felt a lot of relief. You know, I felt empowered to make that choice for me. It wasn't anyone else telling me what to do. It was just my decision. And yeah, it was, it was, so that was really empowering. But I think just thinking about where are you today and what does it mean to you, not other people's ideas or, yeah. Yeah, I think that's very beautiful, that question about, because we never, that like, where are you and how can you be resourced to be there for your son? And you're much better resourced when you're not constantly stressing about, um, <laughs> you know, what other people are thinking. Yeah. And I think the breastfeeding is such an area where it plays out. We had a midwife come to our house after we had our twins, so they were premature, but I was trying really hard to breastfeed them. But they also had tongue time, which was undiagnosed till about six weeks. 
And um, it was a real struggle. I felt a lot of pressure from this midwife to get it right. And at some point, I actually just said to her, you've got to stop like, going on about this to me. Somehow I managed to gather enough like oomph up in myself on that area to just like tell her to back off. And that made me feel so much better because we, I pumped actually, because breastfeeding, we never really managed to establish. So I pumped till about seven months and then we fed. But there's so much loss of a fantasy of loss around. I'm going to be this like amazing earth mother breastfeeding. Yeah. And, and and there's so much grief often in that, actually. Yeah, it, it was a grief. And there is a really good book by Professor Amy Brown called Why Breastfeeding Grief Matters, I think. And it's really helpful because it does matter. And there is this idea, but it's fine, fed is best. And it, of course, like, we need to feed our babies. But yeah. it's not even about the debate over breast milk. It's about the how the the mother feels and yeah what what expect i think what expectations are there or there is I don't, it's really complex isn't it it's just no it's so complex and i think for the words that you just said about how the mother feels because really that's kind of the crux of parenting actually how we feel in all of these situations and how can we be kind to ourselves about what is going on yeah exactly yeah and then kind of turn up for ourselves and only then can we even be there for our children. But I think I follow her on Instagram, but I haven't heard of that book. That's, that's a beautiful recommendation. Thank you. Yeah, it's really good. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast was because I absolutely loved a post you, um, you put on Instagram about how you described why you had to become a baby sleep consultant and an expert in holistic sleep. And it felt like such a beautiful description of some of the way that you grew yourself up. Do you want to tell us a bit about you and your son and sleep and how it evolved yeah so yeah like I said he was we had a few initial challenges and he was a very I think he's quite a sensitive soul you know he definitely needed a lot from us he definitely wasn't an easygoing baby or child (laughs) Um, and I I felt like when I was looking for help you know he like I said like he was you know it's not that I expected him actually to do sleep through the night or anything like that but it was just quite difficult because he really couldn't sleep anywhere other than on mine or my husband's chest and after a few months or weeks even you know you can't always be in shifts one parent probably is going to go back to work yeah it's hard it's really hard you know there are life does need to kind of continue in some way anyway and I felt like when I was looking for advice and support over things like sleep and feeding and just general life with a baby a lot of the responses were you know leave him to cry or you know let himself soothe um get him onto a strict routine and I got really fixated and obsessed with a lot of these rules and this idea that there was this perfect way that you could control sleep and become this perfect mother and basically have all the uh, the hacks and and then I realized that it didn't actually provide me any happiness the more controlling I became and the more obsessive I became, the more miserable I did. And it didn't, didn't work. I'd feel like I'd make a little bit of progress and be like, yes, he did this thing that I've been wanting him to do. And then it would stop and he'd go backwards and I'd feel like even more of a failure. And I just felt like I was just always trying to control and control and become this perfect parent. Cause I thought, oh, if I had a baby that slept really well, it would make me seem like a really good parent. And I could, you know, people would think I've, I don't know, I've got it down. But instead, he was just this very highly sensitive little soul who just needed me to keep him close, respond to him, make him feel safe, get to know him, get to know his cues, figure out what I needed, what he needed. 
But instead, I suppose I looked externally and I looked at what other people were telling me what to do. And I was following these books and guides and all these things. And I think it got to the point where I just thought, enough is enough, actually. This is really stealing my joy from parenthood. It was making me miserable. And I let go of all of these rules. And I started thinking about his sleep holistically or his, you know, actually, who is he? Who, what is his temperament? What is his personality? Where is he right now? What is biologically normal? Like, actually, he seems quite normal. <laughs> you know, normal is a big spectrum. It's like they're not all going to be the same, but he's certainly, he's not broken. I'm not broken. He's just where he is. And then thinking about the holistic things of like, well, his reflux, what might be causing that, what might be going on for his feeding, what might be going on for him from a sensory point of view, all of that whole picture stuff and started learning about how we can actually help, you know, people make little changes or make things a bit more sustainable how can you you know I started um co-sleeping and how can we do that safely and actually that was great and it sort of leaned into I suppose to where we were yes and then I did find that naturally his sleep did improve as it normally does yeah. and yeah that even though I had a lot to learn and I benefited from the wisdom of others there was also a lot I already did know actually if I if I kind of tuned into that voice as well um so yeah, so it went from him being just, yeah, very unsettled and, and me feeling completely just rubbish as a mother to feeling, actually, I'm not too bad at this. And it, if I kind of trust him and trust myself, then parenthood is a much more enjoyable experience. I think we need like a big sticker to like stick on our foreheads or like a big sticker for all of us to say that, that if we trust our children and we trust ourselves, then it's much more enjoyable because what you said about control, first of all, when we try and control, it's a complete illusion because we cannot control our children. And many of us have made ourselves safe as children from controlling because it did actually help in some ways as children when we grew up. And what you said about trust, because you've described a process of growing self-trust and how you already knew so much about how to soothe him and to co-regulate and it's like I could hear the peace coming into your voice as you described that process to oh, us yeah. around that self-trust. And the, because it's funny, isn't it? This idea of how we imagine parenting is about other people judging how good we are to, by some of the behavioral things our children demonstrate, when really the only thing that matters is what's going on with them and how are we managing to respond and how do we feel about that? I mean, the relationship, but... We've got it all wrong in all the way that we kind of communicated to from a mainstream perspective. And I love the way you, you kind of just made that when you said it was stealing your joy from parenthood. What a powerful realization to get to. Yeah. Yeah. So powerful. Yeah. Everything, just the control element, learning, I suppose, to surrender is really difficult thing to do, isn't it? Very difficult. Well, for me, it is anyway. I'm, I am someone that really does like control and order and structure and I think that's really hard to let that go in in parenthood I think it's really 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 hard because it gives us that illusion of safety but but really all we have is the anxiety actually of of trying to get the control to work if that makes sense you know instead of actually then an outcome which we wanted I mean I'm in a constant process of letting go around sleep we also have two highly sensitive children and Sleep has always been an issue. So, and I know that people who are listening will resonate with a lot of what you're saying. 
How does it feel as you sort of share this with us? Like, what do you reflect on with the sleep journey? I think there are just a lot of societal unrealistic expectations we have about young children and sleep that I that I really thought. And I, I think I had this view that parents who would do things like co-sleeping or I suppose do those more fun responsive, like nurturing things, I thought they were maybe a bit permissive and pushovers. But actually, I think I realised that like that is just who the child is, and you've just kind of got to accept that your that your child is. I think I was quite lucky actually in that we had in my antenatal group we had a, a set of twins okay. who could not have been more different. And I think at one point, probably when they were quite old, so in you know maybe like eight nine months, I think that mother just said she could probably see a lot of us just like getting really anxious about lots of things she said look I've got two babies I'm doing exactly the same things one of them sleeps through the night and one is like up every two (laughs) like and I think that did give me a bit of perspective actually of like you know of how maybe it isn't all on my shoulders and maybe I you know it's not all my fault if they if if my child doesn't because look at her situation so that was helpful but yeah I think we have this idea that and certainly this will be reinforced by, by healthcare workers and things that babies might sleep through at six months, for example. They might not need night feeds at six months, which is not evidence-based at all, or, you know, it's a really unrealistic idea. But things like that, you absorb these messages or that children, because they say room share for at least six months, that at six months, all babies will be ready to go into their own cot, sleep through the night and not need any feeds at night. Things like that, um, that they should all be sleeping independently, that, that that if they don't, that you're doing something wrong. You shouldn't feed them to sleep or rock them to sleep. Or if you are, then you're, you're making a rod for your own back or they'll never, or if you bring them into your bed, you'll never get them out, all of those things. So I think hearing other people's stories, I think also really helped. So finding like online communities of people doing things similar to me and le- looking what a range of experiences there are out there. I think that really helps with sleep, just knowing, okay, maybe 10% of children this age are still particularly wakeful, but actually that's one in 10. That's quite a lot. You know, it might not be the norm, but it's not all, even if it's, you know, 5% of toddlers are waking this much, you think, well, actually, that means if we're in a room of 20 kids, there's one of them that's going to be wakeful. That's quite normal. You know, just understanding that, um, understanding that it's not, there is, that perfect doesn't exist when it comes to sleep. And that, yeah, that it's not just a case of get them on this routine, feed them this amount of milk and do X, Y, Z and they will they will sleep through the night that actually sleep is complex. We all sleep differently. We all have different body clocks, different, you know, preferences, different experiences, different emotional lives and, you know, and our children have very different temperaments. And I think temperament is probably the biggest factor on how your child is going to sleep more than anything else, personally. But yes. I definitely agree with you. I think that what you said about temperament, but there was something else. What did you just say that I wanted to pick up on? I can't remember. I'll have to remember that. But we also have twins. And so, um, and we have two quite different experiences, even though they're both highly sensitive. One likes to sleep with one of us, or one of my husband or I, and the other one prefers to have her bed to herself, but sometimes wants um, help. Or like not help, but kind of if she's sick at the moment, so she wants someone to sleep with her. But what you said about self-blame, I think, is so important because I think, first of all, there's too much mother blame generally in society, but there's this idea that if anything is going kind of off some sort of very narrow norm, it's somehow our fault and this endless blame. And I want to invite everyone who's listening to just really notice where you're blaming yourself and to try and 
take that away, it makes things so much more unjoyful. It's really hard when there's any level of blame. Yeah. And we don't have to do that. Because we, like what you said about temperament, I have done a lot of self-blame as well because I'm like, I've got a very sensitive nervous system. You know, what you said about being easygoing, I laughed because I am not an easygoing person. So I'm not sure why did I think I would get two easygoing children, (laughs) do you know what I mean? My husband is much more easygoing than me, but I sort of think, oh yeah, this is how I am. So this is going to come out somehow in my children, you know, and, and that's okay. You know, so we're all different people, but sort of acknowledging that we can notice something is from us, but we don't have to castigate ourselves for it. You know, I think it's so important. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you, I love what you said about temperament, because I think that's just really, really true. My sister had a baby. So her second child, a daughter, it was, she had a home birth. The baby basically dropped out of her. My sister was in a much better place in her life with this child. She, they had a wonderful breastfeeding journey. They seemed to be so much joy, like when I observed them. And that child slept through the night at like eight weeks. She then did wake up and have issues with teething, but there's so much kind of in the field for, for all of us. And it just comes out in different ways. Yeah. So Hannah, one of the things that I really struggled with in my own motherhood, and, and I have clients who struggle with this, and this is a, a wide thing, is um, rage. And, and when my children wouldn't go to sleep, um, rage would come up for me. And I remember one time I had to like literally hand one of my twins over to my husband um, and kind of leave the room because I was just feeling like, what is wrong with you people? Why can't you go to sleep? Did you, have you experienced rage in motherhood? Do you have any um, thing you want to share about that? I have enormously. And I think for me, it was a really big part of of shame, of guilt. Uh, I felt like the feeling of rage and anger was the antithesis of what a good mother should be. That I, I felt like mothers should be patient, able to endure and, and weather the storm. I wanted to be a rock of calm for my child. I wanted to be this serene, lovely, you know, loving, nurturing figure in his life. And not someone who, yeah, the nap rage, bedtime rage, middle of the night rage, feeling this like really powerful emotion. And then the shame that comes with feeling that emotion has been a really big part of my motherhood journey. And something I've tried to learn a lot about and understand, but there is a particular type of fury for a tired child that will not sleep you know and then they're crying they're triggering something in you you know I know I need to be calm to help them calm to co-regulate I'm trying to soothe and settle and instead I'm feeling overwhelmed touched out I feel like a failure in that moment I think that's a big part of it I feel like I'm supposed to be able to soothe you and I can't what's wrong with me so yeah, I think there have been many times when I've had to hand a ch- hand my baby over to my husband and just walk out the room, splash some water on my face, yeah, recollect myself. Or you know, there have been times when I've been at home alone and I've had to sort of leave my son in in a cot, for example, for a minute just to step away and breathe, and then come back to him because I get to this point where I cannot regulate myself anymore and I'm just really angry and. It's a horrible feeling. It is a really horrible feeling. I've also experienced a lot of rage in motherhood. And I really want to say here that 
we're not in control of ourselves at that point in terms of from a physiological point of view. We've burst right out of our window of tolerance because we've received too many signs of danger. So from a nervous system point of view, we've completely flooded. And this is one of the biggest places where our own childhood stuff will be triggered around whatever our story is around, I can't cope or um, this is too much for me. Because in those moments, the implicit memories of our own, which will be triggered, um, that's when they really come, um, like a lot of them will come up. And I've done a lot of writing on rage, actually, but the the shame that goes along with the rage because the idea, first of all, there's that fantasy of how we should be as a mother. And more than that, there's the shame of, I think for many of us, particularly girls, we were completely shut down as children. So rage could be characterized as old anger. And we, we haven't been allowed to have our own ability to protest from, from very young. And so there's, um, I'm 46, but I think there's a lot of us kind of in the generation, like current, the current generation as younger than me and older than me as well, who were just told, go to your room if you're crying. Um, you're going to get a smack. Um, totally shut down for any feelings that were not like happy and joyful, basically. And so if we think about it from a somatic perspective, when something happens like our child is like driving us crazy, it doesn't take actually that much to touch all of that stuff. And I've used the words, I feel like I have a volcano in my body because I can feel it. Um, I mean, I've taken a lot of time to really get to know my own nervous system and notice what my signals are before I really explode so that I can really tend to myself. But I want to say to everyone that this is such an important topic. We have to lift the lid on this, and we are lifting it. I think there's so much societal talk about this now, and that it's actually so important to go into our own story because we can't just continue to rage and rage and rage and rage. At some point, I felt like I remember throwing a dishcloth on the floor and walking out of the kitchen when my kids were, it wasn't actually even around sleep, but they'd done, they weren't eating the food I cooked, basically, I think, and it was some like big drama around food. And um, there's a lot of, you know, in some sense, people say just go and beat a pillow or something. But then we can get into cycles of just wanting to throw things or slam doors or kind of just expel the rage. But actually, each of our stories um, contains so much valuable stuff for us in our own reparenting journey. And so I would, people who are listening, like, kind of take the time to get to know some of your own story around why this may happen because I think there's so much gold to be mined there so that we can grow ourselves up you know gosh yeah that really resonates because um you know my mum and one of four children and she she had a very full plate and when she was in her 40s she went to university and trained as a social worker and then learned a lot about um child development and had then a lot of guilt because she said at the time in the in the 80s you know, when she was raising us, that there was a, the advice was ignore the bad behavior, make a joke out of it. Like I rem- and I have memories myself of being maybe four or five and having these really big tantrums, um, and being on my own with them, and yeah. my mum ignoring it, and and you know, that was what she said. She was told to do. That's what all of her friends did. She said. You know, she said it never felt right. I, I always, I would sometimes be on the other side of the door crying myself, listening to you cry. 
But I remember it. And I think for me then, that's why maybe I felt so strongly against things like, you know, methods of parenting that involve so much separation and, and, and children distress, because perhaps that does tap into something for me that I can remember, even though my mum didn't sleep trainers and, you know, that's not, that wasn't her ethos around sleep, but the kind of ignore the tantrum till it goes away. I really remember that feeling. And I, I'm sure that is a huge part of where my maternal rage comes from now because that reparenting journey is so intense, isn't it? Um, it's so different for all of us. It is so intense. And I think um, I can really feel in my own body resonating with your story because I'm also one of four. Well, I'm one of six, actually. My mother had one miscarriage and one baby who died when he was um, very little. When we had a meltdown or something, she would say she was going to phone the children's theatre and she would pick up. It was more like those days where you had a phone where you dialed and you went around. You know, you know those phones, instead of a touch tone, you had... And so she would make the sound of saying, I'm going to phone the children's theatre and dial this number. And so, it was, again, it was totally like a joke. You know, like, your rage and your distress don't matter. We're going to send you away so you can go and be an actor. I think yeah. I laugh now, but also there's a part of me who wants to burst into tears and sob with you about this, you know? Yeah. And so I think that even just now, we've mined our own stories. Just, I mean, that's a tiny bit, I guess, of what happened for both of us. But like taking the time to get to know your own story, everyone who's here with us, you know, journaling, if you don't have a therapist, journaling can be really helpful about this and slowing down the movie of what actually happens when you go into a rage so that you can notice like the actual triggers and also what you're telling yourself at those points about how things should be different. That's a really helpful thing to journal on everyone who's listening. Yeah. But yeah, that's, there's so much because really I think the biggest thing is actually we need tenderness for ourselves and our inner children and like our little girls. So much tenderness. Yeah. Because this job of reparenting alongside parenting is just huge. Yeah, it is. Oh, I think I could talk to you for like days about rage, Hannah. Me too. So maybe we'll invite you back again for that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, before we finish now, is there anything else that you'd like to say? I think it's just really important that for however our child sleeps, that we don't use that as a benchmark for our worth as a parent. I suppose another thing that I've really struggled with is, is is asking for help or admitting I don't know or admitting I can't cope. And so I feel like that's another, you know, finding other people, I suppose, that can just say, yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? Or I'm I'm struggling with this too. For me, that's been really transformative. And yeah. even though I think the internet is is very problematic for a lot of where there's a lot of reasons why it can be very difficult for the parenting space. But if you can find corners of the internet or place, you know, if it's not happening in your real life, I think online communities can be really helpful in that way as well. And um, yeah, and just being, you know, I think that what you said about tenderness and being kind to yourself, I think that's what it comes down to because motherhood, it can be very a lonely job. There can be a lot of just one-on-one time with a child. I, I know I can spend a lot of time in my head thinking things over and well, there's a lot of mundane, repetitive tasks that you're doing and it can be really easy to get lost in your own thoughts and then for those thoughts not to be healthy. So I think talking about it, sharing our experiences and and finding that tenderness and kindness to yourself are really important. I'm going to try and do that more more today myself. It's going to be a very good reminder for my own challenges. Thank you so much for taking the time um, to be here with us today. It's been a very beautiful conversation. 
I think we discussed before we recorded that I always say we go on this pathway and and the pathway just emerges so beautifully. And thank you so much for what you've shared. Oh, it's been such a privilege. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living. Thank you.